So you're ready to ask the biggest question of your life. The only question before that question. How do you find the perfect ring to ask it with? With the incredible selection of diamonds at Jared and our price match guarantee, you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love. Visit your local Jared store today and dare to be devoted. We promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer. See jared.com slash price match for details. Hello, and welcome to Everyday Connection Now, with your hosts, Jean Victoria Norlock and Rick O'Shields, bringing your inner life to your everyday life. Welcome, everybody, to this edition of Everyday Connection Now. I am, yet again, Rico Shields, and far to my north, in the mountains of Quebec, Jean Victoria Norlock. How are you, Jean? I'm good, Rick. How are you? I'm good. I, uh, I don't know. I feel accomplished today. I didn't do much, but I feel accomplished, so yay, me. That's awesome. <laughs> I, yeah, you. I'll go with the feeling, but you know, I swept the porch. Absolutely. Maybe that counts. I don't know. Um, <laughs> well, I don't know what we we were just talking before the show. We don't know what we're going to banter about, but we like that good news thing, and um, so maybe we can talk about Kenya. I think it's Kenya. Was it Kenya? It was Kenya. Yeah, with a rather uh, large, unexpected reserve of water underneath the ground. Yeah, apparently scientists have located um, some 70 years of water at current usage rates. And uh, how awesome is that? How what what kind of peace of mind could people get out of knowing that they've got at least a half a century of water, uh, particularly in a place Absolutely. like Africa? I think that that would just be very, you know, peace-giving. So we, we, you know, innate abundance, just turning up and showing itself. And, and you know, I'm find, looking for the thing, and I can't find the article to be sure I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, I mean, I found it. I remember it. seeing the map. It is very, it's very, very large reserve. It's huge. Very large reserve. And... Um, you know, it, it's been found in a country that needs it. So that's always awesome. It's always awesome when and they've people always are gifted been, with something that they're in need of. Our, uh, one of our past guests, Richard Poole, commented that, you know, how cool that was because Kenya has always had open arms for refugees and this and that. And so, you know. And then, of course, there was a, a, a first, another first. We like those firsts, don't we? West Point. You know, that's the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, right? But they just call it West mm-hmm. Point. Uh, well, West Point hosted its first wedding between two men. Really? Yeah. At a military installation? Yes. At, at the, you know... That's I'm, interesting. I'm from West Point, you know, and then everybody goes, ooh, ah. Uh, yeah. And uh, they did... West Point is, of course. In late, Canadians know what West Point is. <laughs> late 2012, they did... 
two women were married there, but this is the first time that two men have been married at the uh, U.S. Military Academy. And um, uh, it's two, wow. two cadets, you know, one of them from the class of 2007, one from the class of 2009. Um, before about 20 guests, it was a small affair. Uh, but in many ways, it was also a really, really big affair. I mean, that's big. Yeah, absolutely. Some that's huge. Some of these things get sneak by, and 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 people are like, "Well, when's this change thing, this shift thing? When is this going to start?" <laughs> okay, well, y'all, you're not looking enough because it's starting to Have get. Have at the world lately? I remember when I had to dig yeah. through it's blogs and things to find our good news stories, and now I just look at the BBC. How cool is that? Mainstream Very media. Cool. Very cool. And we're going to have coolness tonight. Um, I, I almost feel like I should speak more softly, but I am in surrounded by the the uh, jungle of Costa Rica. I have a family of Coatamundi that are nesting in the palm tree out back. It's making the monkeys angry because they usually stop by. <laughs> well, they usually stop by in the morning and eat palm oil fruits, and now it's there's a mama Coati and her babies up there. I'm just trying to make sure Molly doesn't go over there and try to chase them because nothing like an angry mama. That's no, that, that, not good. <laughs> Wouldn't know anything about that. But uh, <laughs> but we do have a great guest tonight, so you know I guess our digression should end maybe. Um, we have with us tonight. Uh, Absolutely. Author. I think we should just go ahead and introduce him. I'm curious yeah. to find out who this person is. Um, our guest tonight is an author. Uh, he's a uh, professor, an educator, uh, and, um, you know, so many things he's done, like so many of us, by the time we get to the show. But uh, yeah, 30 years as a professor of sociology at Brandeis University. Uh, Charles S. Fisher, Ph.D. How are you, Charlie? I'm doing great. Uh-oh. Well, we're glad you're here, and I want to thank you uh, for uh, carving out some time for us. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're having me. So we'll get started um, with the big question I hope you studied. It's a tough one. Who on earth are you, and what do you do? Let's say this. Repeat the question to me, please. Do you repeat? Who on earth are you, question? and what do you do? It's she. You broke up just a, just a tad there. Hopefully, we'll get the mountain communication straightened out as we go along. But uh, she's asking, "Who on earth are you, and what do you do?" Okay, who on earth am I? Well, I am on earth. That's for sure. Uh, incarnated in this body. Um, and who I am is almost like uh, the question that Ramana Maharshi phrased a long time ago. You know, who am I? Who's this? I used to sit in and ask myself in meditation practice, who is Charlie? Right? Who is Charlie? Like a mantra over and over again. And I haven't figured it out yet, even though I'm fairly well defined in life. Um, 
75 years old now. I was uh, out mixing concrete a little earlier, um, which my friends get a little irritated with me when I do things like that, but I love it. Anything working with my hands. I've been all over the place in life. Um, I was a professor for 30 years. I've been a migrant laborer, um, even hoboed some. Um, I have a doctorate in mathematics. Um, How all these things fit together, I haven't quite figured out. I've been involved in meditation for a long time and involved in hanging out in in various natural places. I mean, I never made it to Nicaragua, I mean, to uh, Costa Rica, Rick, but I worked in Nicaragua for the Sandinistas um, and wandered around the jungles in Mexico and British Honduras. It wasn't even Belize at that time. So who I am is a little bit of a puzzle uh, to me. I mean, I love to sit quietly in my backyard listening to birds. I mean, you have jungle around you. I have, oh, probably 150-foot tall redwood trees that I'm looking out at in my front yard at the moment uh, in the fading sun. Yeah, in the fading sun here. So what do I do now? I uh, write books um, about Buddhism, and I have uh, books about politics and stuff like that that have never made it onto the bookshelves. Um, but mainly the books that get published now are, have to do with some or another aspect of meditation and human nature. Um, I spend time in the, in the woods. I love bird watching and looking at flowers. I have a friend who's a wonderful naturalist and we take people on field trips. Um, you know, I don't know. I spent part of the summer on a remote lake in Northern British Columbia uh floating in a kayak it was one of the one of the sweetest times of my life i loved it um so i do things like that i'm politically active when it makes sense which given the situation of the world now it's hard to figure out where one can really make sense um politically these days although i feel compelled to help so those are the kinds of things i do I, I mean, I love working with my hands. Um, I even even the the the, um, the caustic stuff in concrete, and just to feel my hands afterwards, having patted down the concrete, uh, you know. And if it were springtime, I would listen to the birds while I was doing that. So those are some of the things that I do in life. Some of the aspects of who I am. Well, that's just awesome. Nothing that's... better than getting getting a seventy five year old gentleman on the show and say, "I don't, I'm not done yet figuring out who I am." <laughs> it gives such hope to those young ones out there who are feeling lost and confused, and you know, why haven't I defined myself yet? And and that's always the question um, for for many people: who who am I? But if it's okay to swim in the energy of who am I for 75 years, then that's, that's yummy to me. It makes me feel better. (laughs) Makes me feel more normal, I guess. Right. (laughs) Such a, such a sense of time, you know, since you're, 
at half that age. So you got plenty of time to keep working on that. And B, I don't know. But something happened in the course of asking the question over the years that changed it from me being worried about whether I have defined myself to kind of an understanding that the definition of who I am is what I'm doing now. And um, I'm living a whole lot more peacefully with that. Uh, you know, the, my friends would say things like, oh, what am I going to do when I grow up? You know, and they're 55 or 60 years old. I feel like I grew up somewhere in the process. And so that question is not there. Uh, and I don't really have to worry so much about defining myself, putting effort into defining myself. Uh, many years ago, uh, when I was in a pretty um, confused state of mind, I went to see uh, Ramdas, who I had intersected with over the years. And I posed to him a question about um, the relationship between intimacy and service. In other words, for all of us, those are two great challenges, right? You know, what is intimacy? that works and is satisfying in the world in which we live in. And that can be quite confusing. And then how does that fit with doing something useful in life? And it was really interesting. It was wonderful what he said. I mean, it's before his, his stroke, uh, so he, you know, he's since Uh oh. Anyway, he's a he's a very wise man, and he looked at me and he said, "Don't think you can do anything. Get out of the way and let God do it." And I was very deeply moved by that answer. And after after talking to him, I went and sat on the hills near his house and was actually troubled by it. You know, because what kind of way could I really let go sufficiently and look around and ask what was, you know, look around for what was being asked of me in life and then step forward to that and not worry so much, do I do this, do I do that? And usually it's pretty clear what, what you need to do. Um, you know, sometimes... You know, it gets confusing because there's nothing presented. And I found when there's nothing presented, I go and meditate and wander in the woods. And then almost invariably, there's another challenge put forward, you know, uh, whether it's, uh, whether it's um, a meditation question that needs urgently to be answered by putting intense energy into meditation or whether it's some environmental issue that really needs to be addressed or frequently it's personal thing. Someone in my life needs help. Uh, and there's, you know, there's an, a, a young person or someone who's much older than me. And I've learned to step right into that. In other words, you and not to ask questions. That's what, you know, God is, in some sense, telling me what to do. 
Um, and it's been pretty clear. You know, sometimes I want to turn around and say, okay, what's next, God? Come on. I'm not particularly a theist of this, this guy with a, you know, a beard sitting on a throne somewhere. It's sort of like existence. You know, existence does seem to present what needs to be done. Sometimes it takes immense courage. And sometimes I go, come on, God, not this one. I don't really want to do this one. <laughs> not, not, not now. That's right. <laughs> yeah, anyway, I find it so. really interesting that you're going down that path so early in the conversation just because I've, I've just recently been given a very unique opportunity. I've been told by my love to take a year off. Take a year uh-huh. off and just do whatever. And you don't have to worry about the bills. You don't have to worry about anything. Just take a year off. And like instantly I have no motivation, no drive, no inspiration to do anything. And I'm kind of sitting over here beating myself up for not doing that. But having done this show for three years, I know better. Yet my survival instinct is still kicking in and I'm kind of kicking myself in the butt and saying, oh, I got to do something. I got to do something. And I just can't bring myself to get to that still state. But I'm glad that you're, you're mentioning it. Because so often in the show, our guests are so, they're, they're a synchronistic answer to the questions that are being asked by either our listeners or by Rick and I on a very personal level. So you're touching on something that's actually going on in my life right now. What's next? What do I do? And I... I mean, kind of doing my question for the last two days. Yeah, I mean, doing nothing is a possibility, but don't do uh, uh, a a lazy nothing. You have to do a very active nothing. Um, Yeah, because nothing is something. It's really well, nothing is deeply challenging. That you know, that's that's where the real. I mean, it's easy to go and get a picket, you know, get, uh, you know, a sign in the march on the street. But can you really be still and let whatever it is flowing through you flow through you? That's probably one of the greatest challenges in life. And there are times when it's appropriate to do that, and there are times when it's not appropriate to do that. And uh, you know, you don't always know, so you you know, you take a chance with it, but. If someone is offering you, you know, support for a year, uh, I think it's a wonderful thing. I mean, the the, the opportunities are, are are great, and it may be a challenge to turn in a direction you wouldn't have imagined you would do, and throw a lot of energy into something that's entirely different. Um, you know, that it's only something that you can answer for yourself. You know, people can come up with suggestions, but um, well, I, I, I think it's an awesome gift, and and somehow I don't find it that unusual that the very first thing is be still. I used to have a real problem with that, but I've it's been thrown in my face multiple times here in Costa Rica. Um, and at sometimes at times when I was convinced things were really in bad shape and that I must do something. And 
And the answer always came once I settled down and did nothing. The answer always just appeared without any effort or any, I, I didn't have to do much of I mean sometimes the answer was something that then I needed to go do. But the 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 arrival of the answer was not an action thing. It was a to be still thing, which was really I had a lot of trouble with that, having come from a big American city where everything moves at five thousand miles an hour, twenty four seven. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I love to meditate in the woods, and um, I've been doing it for years. And um, it's not for everybody. Uh, the Buddha said that you had to have the right disposition to do it. So I would never offer it as a universal panacea. But it's interesting how quiet and boring the woods can be. And yet life is going on there intensely. Uh, you know, and it's a very deep challenge in doing that it's very very still get very very still and something of everything that's going on around you begins to emerge and if you don't have things to distract you um, it's a wonderful place to learn patience and openness and then sometimes some pretty changing uh, things not only the ones inside you what happens when you get silent? But <laughs> your your ghosts and your demons and your uh, desires and stuff like that come out on their white chargers and, and uh, kind of fly at you. But also the surroundings. So for me, that's not only a healing place but a, a challenging place. It's a place that that brings me to an edge of my being. And, um, you know, so like you like you said, things jump up, bubble up, um, present themselves, and when you're in this kind of an environment, uh, where I mean, even sitting on my patio, there's lights here, but other than that, I'm I'm surrounded, and um, some of the insect life, of course, right up here with me, the lights on. Um, but it it just seems to be conducive to being able to be still long enough not only to see, hear, feel whatever has come up, but to to sort of sit with it and and then see where it goes. Like I don't know, watch it move is what comes to mind. Uh, maybe for a term because sometimes it does. It's like the, these things arise and then they... But there does seem to be something about... I mean, Gene has gone off to the Laurentian Mountains in Canada. Uh, I've gone off to the jungles of Costa Rica. Uh, and uh, there just seems to be something about... And, and, of course, that's really what your latest book is about, is that there's something about raw nature. Yeah. Um, there is a kind of underlying um, 
difference of interpretations of where the beginning of meditation comes from. Um, meditation in the sense that the, the, the Brahmins and the Buddhists um, and the Jains did it uh, in ancient India seems pretty much a product of civilization. In other words, you, if you look at indigenous peoples, it's not that they don't have ways of touching in on the quiet, but they never integrated those into a kind of worldview. And this is not a, a comparative thing. It's not worse or what have you. It's just that the necessities of daily life and hunter-gatherer society uh, kind of kept the cosmology a little simple. Uh, whereas in the kind of root religions of India, that people were, had a certain kind of philosophic outlook. And the question, the kind of historical question that exists is to withdraw on the fact that these peoples in India were kind of coming out of natural and we're making lives in an agricultural world um, and that it was harking back to that life in the in kind of in the wild or was it really a product of their civilizing uh, their progress in civilization and um, my my great buddy Stephen Batchelor whose last book was called Confession of a Buddhist Atheist um, and and in which he's trying to take his part what he believes is the symbol of meditation in Buddhism. He really thinks that civilization is the source of kind of the inspiration for meditation, um, and he has his particular take on it. And it kind of come from the, another school. I kind of think that, hey, these people that were transitioning from a situation where life was really demanding in hunter-gatherer society, and agriculture made it possible for you could support monks and wandering mendicants and uh, shamans and things like that. And not that there weren't shamans and hunter-gatherer societies, but you really could afford them as people of leisure. And that in the leisure, people got distraught. I mean, leisure in some ways is is wonderful. I mean, who wants to do survival all the time? We have these humongous brains which have other aspects to them. But leisure also is challenging. It creates a situation where... The suffering that's created by our minds is much more evident. So my kind of predilection, my kind of flavor, is to take it back to its sources in nature. Stephen would see it more as coming out from the civilizing things that were going on. And uh, that's kind of interesting. And that's kind of, no one can really answer it historically, I mean, I think I'm right, um, but I love what he writes. I mean, he's a wonderful scholar of kind of the essence of Buddhist meditation. Um, and I don't think he would go sit in the woods. He's such a exquisitely civilized man. And I'm not so civilized, I must say. I can do this <laughs> so, so civilization. 
but I kind of more rough hewn. And, you know, I have that disposition that when I walk in the woods, I feel more at home than when I take a subway. Uh, and that's not better or worse. It's just how I'm put together. So I tend to draw from the things that obviously the two of you also are attracted to, uh, the inspiration for why I think, what, how I think one could um, kind of plumb the depths of, of the challenges of meditation. For me, they're in the woods. For other people, they're in monasteries or, you know, maybe in on the subway in New York City or, um, you know, uh, well, uh, text messaging and driving on a super highway. Although, if that's really the place that deep awareness comes, I I, I don't know. Well, <laughs> I, 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 that's, sure that's the world I want to live in. <laughs> I think it's wonderful that we can take so many different routes uh, and so many different ways to get to the to try to get to the same place of stillness and. Um, uh, I'm sure, I know that trying to get to that stillness was very challenging for me in a fast-moving environment and has been much easier in... Uh, not that there aren't things always going on in the jungle around. I mean, it's... I don't, I don't even let my dog get out of the illuminated area at night because there's lots going on out there, and a good number of which would not mind eating her. But... Um, it, it 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 just is hard. I think it takes work. I know a few people down here that that are still busy in their minds, like I was when I was living in Houston. But I I I find it difficult to maintain. You just you just want to be still. And um, so I I know that you're onto something, and I know that you've got some. Uh, wonderful examples from different people through history. Uh, this is a wee tad early in the show to be taking a break, but I'm going to uh, first apologize to the listeners that there has been a little bit of breakup in the phone line, the Skype line. We're going to disconnect while we take our break and uh, uh, see if we can reconnect and get a, bit, a little bit better pipeline. Sometimes that works. So, Gene, uh, with talking about going out into the, the woods, out into the nature, raw nature, to meditate, I, I think earth prayer is well, of course. really yeah. the only appropriate direction. Makes sense. <laughs> of course. All right. So this will be our friend Ina V, uh, who you can find out more about at inav.com. That's E-N-A-V-I-E.com. Uh, it's a beautiful song based around uh, the Hawaiian practice of Ho'oponopono. And uh, so enjoy the music, and uh, we'll be right back with more with Charles Fisher. So stay with us, folks.
All right. That was our dear friend Ina V. Again with uh, her song Earth Prayer. She's doing some cool philanthropic stuff with the proceeds from that song too. Meiji. Awesome stuff. Yes. We like yes. Ina V. We love such yes. some Ina V. All right. Well, we're back with uh, Charlie Fisher uh, talking about uh, life, the universe, and everything like we always do, and his book. Uh, about the uh, raw nature being Buddha's first teacher, uh, inspiring some folks to retreat to raw nature. And of course, just speaking for me from the middle of the jungle of Costa Rica, that surely nobody does that anymore. Oh, okay, yeah, we do. You're you're right in the middle of a thriving metropolis where you are too, right, Jean? <laughs> Oh, yes, very busy here. Quartz crystals and bush. That's pretty much it. Pretty much it. couple neighbors, but not so many. Pretty much it. Yeah. 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 It works. Didn't know we were, I didn't even know we were having a guest coming up that was going to explain why we were off in those strange corners of the universe, but hey, it's cool. <laughs> I like it. But here he is. Yeah. I'm so. I'm interested to to know how this journey into meditation began. For me, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was a tenured professor, uh, and everything in my life seemed to fall apart. Um, uh, my father died. A uh, relationship for a number of years came apart. Um, and um, I had done lots of therapy, but it didn't seem to be addressing the issues. Um, and it was, oh, mid-70s, and a, a friend of mine who had been a professor had uh, kind of been fired for doing, not fired, but he wasn't promoted, even though he was quite an accomplished scholar in his field for doing strange things and he kind of wandered off into this world of meditation uh he actually became a wandering mendicant on the streets of uh cambridge massachusetts never knew where he, where he would sleep in in the evenings and any kind of guru that came through town he would spend time with them and it somehow worked out you know it was somehow existence provided for him. And I didn't really understand what he was doing. Uh, many of our mutual friends kind of rejected him because they thought he had turned kind of weird. Uh, but I loved the man. I, I had plenty of room in my heart for whatever way he wanted to express his life. It clearly wasn't destructive. And um, he came across, I bumped into him one evening when I was actually in a very despairing play, uh, place. And he he looked at me uh, uh, really deeply and he said, I want you to call me tomorrow. And I called him the next day and he read me the riot act uh, about where my life was going. And he said to me, uh, like in four days or something like that, there was going to be this meditation retreat out at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. I mean, I was a professor uh, on the outskirts of Boston. 
Uh, I was actually had a year sabbatical at that point. My dad always seemed to take my freedom away, and he died on the second or third day of my sabbatical. So there went that year. Um, and I found myself three days later through circumstances, you know, again, that the universe arranged. Um, it was actually one of my students that answered the phone when I called. I had no idea about meditation that people were doing it. They had followed this, my colleague, and um, uh, even when he left the university, they had followed him in the activities that he was in. But I didn't know any of this. And um, she arranged for me. I'm sure she gave me special privilege to get into this full retreat. And for the next month, I sat. I had never really meditated in my life, 12 hours a day, Desperation is a wonderful motivator. <laughs> can't get you over a few bumps in the road, wow. can it? <laughs> oh, the bumps. I was Absolutely. one of the most pain, painful things I had ever done. And uh, in those days, uh, it was pretty gung-ho. I mean, you got up at 4.30 and, you know, you sat and you walked and you sat and you walked and you ate a couple of uh, very, not very uh, adequate meals. Um, from, you know, before sunrise till 10 or 11 at night. And I did every single thing as much as I could. And at the end of it, I knew I wasn't going to continue sitting at the end of the month. But I didn't realize how deeply it had moved something in me. Uh, All I knew is that I wanted to meditate more. And, um, you know, friends of mine afterwards said that I was a changed person. I don't believe them for a moment, but they said that something had shifted in me. <laughs> I, I didn't see it. Uh, I thought I was still pretty unhappy. Um, and for the next, oh, maybe 10 years, um, I used the meditation hall as a, my second home. I sat for a month or two months every year. Um, and uh, it was very challenging. I don't think there's anything harder I have ever done in my life. I'm quite jealous of the people uh, for whom it comes easily, and there are people like that. Um, And it wasn't until 10 or 15 years uh, of really persistent practice that it began to... um, I don't know, open up in me. I don't even know quite how to describe it. It began to feel like just part of my being, just part of my life. Uh, I was doing it because that's what I did, not because I was kind of escaped the suffering that had brought me to it. And it doesn't mean that I don't sit, go nuts sometimes. (laughs) But I also discovered in the course of doing that, and this is what... Most of the forest monks discover, whether they're Zen hermits in Japan or the Buddha's disciples in ancient India, that some period of highly disciplined practice is necessary. And usually within the context of meditation centers or monasteries, it's it's an important foundation of being able to sit in the woods. And if you don't have that, the challenge of sitting without any structure around you can be totally overwhelming. 
And I didn't know when I was uh, getting into meditation that I would end up sitting in the woods. It just started to happen. I was drawn to it. And um, when I wasn't on retreat, that's what I would prefer to do. Um, and even on retreats, it got so... <laughs> I'm, I'm not a very uh, obedient guy anymore. And the forest monks and the hermits and the recluses and the, the desert fathers in Christianity all share this, a, a little bit of kind of rebelliousness or eccentricity or cantankerousness. But, you know, I, on retreats, I would sit in the meditation hall in the morning and I would sit in the woods all afternoon. Um, and uh, um, I found that was that suited me much better. And I've literally spent months of silent meditation in the woods um, and sat with all kinds of wild animals. Um, and... Uh, it's just the way I like to do it. And so I found a kinship. I mean, the idea of writing about it happened about 20 years ago. A uh, suggestion of a friend of mine saying, oh, you know so much about nature and you know so much about meditation. Why don't you put the two together? And a little bell went off in my head. And I then I began. Prior to that, I knew nothing of Buddhist history. I almost never read any, you know, other than inspiring works. I didn't read anything systematically and didn't study Buddha Dharma, as they call it. And in the early 90s, I got this idea of, of the way of trying to understand the way in which nature and meditation wove in and out of each other. And part of it was a book ended up being a book about Buddha and Darwin. Actually, the first stage was like a 600 page manuscript. And then I realized it was two books, uh, four or five years into it. And uh, I mean, I have the skills of a scholar, after all, as a professor, uh, even if I, my scholarship may not have been very profound while I was a professor. And I began to study, I mean, who are these guys that went off in the woods? I mean, I sat with Ajahn Chah at one point, Jack Cornfield's teacher, a uh, very famous in quotes, forest monk from Thailand, but I had no idea where he came from, what his experiences in life were, and he didn't share them particularly. They were kind of expressed in his being. He was an unbelievable human being. You know, he just had a crackle, a little bit of a smile, a little wrinkle in his face, and you would just break up laughing because his sense of joy in life was so, so profound. Anyway, I, I then discovered that what I like to do is something that some very small percentage of Buddhist practitioners since the time of the Buddha had been doing. And so I, you know, sort of discovered my lineage, as they say, and the, the book projects were one about, well, what's the relationship between natural selection and evolution and meditation? Not a simple one at all. And how can you use both of them to describe human nature? And what do they have to say about each other? And that was a fairly technical book about meditation and about how the brain works and, and what disease, old age, and death are like in nature uh, and how we fit into it, how we're kind of very peculiar animals 
we are very much animals. And then the second one book was the one that we're now talking about was what happened to the people, the Buddha himself, when he went off in nature, and I discovered the very first forest meditators that I could find were actually nuns, uh, the the elder the elder nuns of of early Buddhism, who probably were doing it before the Buddha. Every indication is that they were, and then of course the guys. Once the religion got set up, the guys got in charge. Wouldn't let the women do it anymore. Uh, and then the people beyond that in China. There's a great tradition of recluses and, uh, you know, there's part of Taoism, the important aspect that got melded into Buddhism, has a really interesting take on nature and naturalness. Uh, and there were guys like Cold Mountain, uh, um, Han Shan in China, who clearly lived in the mountains. You can, you, you can feel it in his poetry. Uh, and then in Japan, there were wonderful hermits, uh, and uh, you know. And then in Southeast Asia, in the late 19th century, this one Buddhist monk uh, read a translation of some of the commentaries and came across um, forest practice and said, "I can do that," and he went off and did it very much in the spirit that the Buddha and his disciples must have had, you know, 2,500 years before. And not he, but a buddy of his by the name of Ajahn Mun, uh, started a very large movement of forest monks that lasted until the Vietnam War in Southeast Asia, in Thailand, in Burma, in um, Laos, in Cambodia. Um, and uh, so that we had a more contemporary version of what it was must have been like 2,500 years ago in ancient India. And we don't really know. I mean, we have only scraps of evidence from the earlier period, but we have some pretty good uh, um, uh, evidence of what the guys did in the late 19th century and into the 20th century. And I don't think any of them are alive. I think the last one probably died. Ajahn Mahabua died. And then there's one monk who kind of followed in their wake. But the destruction, uh, the agricultural expansion, the defoliation that took place in Thailand and um, and the war in Laos and uh uh, the military dictatorship in Burma, they all brought the tradition to an end in uh, the late 1960s. And uh, the one the one guy is interesting. He's quite a character. And you get a sense of how you tried to do it when the environment had changed um, and kind of life had really changed in Southeast Asia. Uh, but he had contact with people that had really done it when the jungles were still jungles and and you could walk for days and not see another human being. And, um, you know, you weren't regarded as a communist because you were off in the jungles. Anyway, so that was kind of my meditation practice and, you know, the eccentric way that I did it led to my interest in the topic, which became scholarly. Uh 
but what makes made it alive for me is having done an analogous practice to a lot of these people, I could tell what they were talking about. It really reverberated in me, and I could tell the people that were more or less hand-waving. Uh, in China, a lot of the supposed recluses were really not recluses at all, and um, a lot of the nature paintings, as beautiful as they are, and they don't really represent uh, uh, a connection to nature by the men who painted them. Um, and you get a nose for sniffing that out. Uh, and my own experience was really helpful in that. Um, and so, uh, so the book is filled with stories about, you know, people sitting with tigers and <laughs> getting trumped by elephants. A lot of the myths about these guys are not true. <laughs> uh, they weren't. They really are not. But somehow they went off and, and the, oh, God, the cover yeah, of the book. Got tromped by elephants but are still walking around and talking to people. It's, well, no. They don't go together well. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. But, I mean, supposedly their spiritual accomplishment was so deep that they never got trumped by elephants or eaten by tigers. But let me tell you, they did. <laughs> and that's why they went there. They didn't go there to become exceptions to nature. They came there to live with life and death in the raw. And that was their teacher. And so the notion that somehow they were magically protected uh, you know, it's a wonderful myth. I have nothing wrong with the myth, but it wasn't the reality of their lives, nor what they would have wanted for their practice. Right. Um, yeah. That's that's a very important distinction because it's it's not a, it's not like it was an accident that you know here they were meditating and something snuck up on them. It was sort of what they were seeking. Yes. Yeah, and now, um, because in the wild, that's just the way it is. You live for a while, you die. You what? And because the animals don't get worked up about it, I think that's a, a uniquely human thing. Getting so worked up about this dying thing. Well, I mean, we get the anticipation of it, but let me tell you, when uh, you know, when my dog chased a rabbit. <laughs> The rabbit was scared. Let me <laughs> was very scared. Oh yeah, but didn't brood about it beforehand. <laughs> right, he didn't spend five years thinking about how horrible it's going to be. It, it, it certainly, you know, there's, I, I guess, there's a significant difference between fear and danger, and uh, because danger is, there's a dog chasing me, and I'm about to get my ticket punched. Fear is the sitting around and thinking about something that might be like that. It's a bit odd, but but it is. I, I mean, I sit here, I sit here and watch. There's predatory stuff going on all around me. Sometimes, you know, right behind my head, on the sitting on the patio. Uh, we have very active geckos up on the patio, and more stuff out there. It is just part of the deal. Some days you're eating, and some days you get eaten. Yeah. Well, I mean that was. I mean, the, so, the, yeah. Go ahead. Well, well, no, no. Go ahead. Oh, one of the the intention, in part, of going off into the woods was one 
that and this is a major point in in all of all of Buddha's meditation that we tend to get distracted by the society in which we live in and we're in some ways addicted to those distractions or we're burdened with them now you know you got to remember that Buddhism was a was a practice of monks so they didn't have a great appreciation for intimacy, relationship, family. Um, and that was a real lacking in them. But they saw those things as burdens and that you could, would not see. And, of course, gambling and getting drunk and, and working in the field until you were exhausted. These are all things that got in the way of understanding the nature of suffering and understanding what they regarded as the nature of human existence. It's six o'clock. Oh. <laughs> anyway, uh, so their idea was to go where those distractions um, were minimized and face the things that you were talking about, of, about eating and getting eaten, you know, right directly on. So they were right in their face. And... Danger was one of the things. I mean, they had rules, uh, and this goes back to ancient India, or at least the, the third century in Sri Lanka, um, uh, where the, the monks would wander in the jungles, and they would have their three robes, and sandals or no sandals, the whole thing around sandals. There was all kinds of stuff, whether you wore sandals or not. But caring for your feet was very important. Um, and then they had this little umbrella over their head, and they had a mosquito net draped over the umbrella. And one of the practices was never to lay down. So like the Buddha, they would take a seat under a tree, set up their little mosquito net and umbrella, and vow not to move until the sun rose. And there are wonderful stories of the ants dropping into the little hole at the top of the umbrella and crawling all over a guy sitting there. You know, there are stories about the raging elephants <laughs> coming to confront them. And wild elephants are quite dangerous, uh, et cetera. They're the tigers, and especially in China with the, the recluses, the whole thing is about the tigers roaring in the distance or roaring near you stuff like that, or approaching you. So they wanted to face that fear in the absolutely rawness of it. No protections, no distractions. And Ajahn Mahabua, um, who probably died in the last few years, he must have been in his 90s, and was of the last generation of forest monks in in uh, in Thailand, and he stopped wandering about 1968 or something like that. And, you know, and that was, what, is that 40, 50 years ago now, 40 years ago? You know, and he was probably, I don't know, 30 or 40 then, so he's probably in his, in, died in his mid or late 90s. And he had the reputation for sitting with tigers. And there's a picture of him on the website for the book, um, and you look at this guy, and he really sat with tigers. 
And that was the foundation of his practice. And that's what he taught. He didn't teach what you do in the jungles because that was over. But he taught the attitude of could you sit with tigers? And uh, I don't know that. I mean, well, <laughs> and we won't go into my own stuff. But uh, it's, it's a profound challenge. I mean, it is, you know, and fear and how what what Ajahn Mahabhuva would say is samadhi, which means concentration or one-pointedness, right? Fear drives samadhi or uh, concentration to insight. So if you can sit there with a tiger or the elephant coming directly at you with the incredible steadiness of being aware, of being aware of everything that's going on in your mind and your body, being aware of the tiger, being aware of the eat or being eaten aspect of nature. For him, that was the profoundest teacher. And he believed that very deep insight came out of that. I would think it would have to, really. Um it's, you know, I certainly haven't had any experiences like that, but um, uh, but I do. As I sit out here, you know, things land on me in places that I can't see what it is. I don't know what it is. And there's some odd insects and critters around here flying oh, around. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, um, uh, but people have remarked, people that know me have remarked, they'll be on the phone with me and I'll, Something will land, and I'll get rid of it, and, and I'll say, "Excuse me, I, you know, there's a bug landed on me," and they're like, "Really? That's not." You used to freak out, and I did. Oh, I used I used to look like some kind of, you know, kung fu, <laughs> but very poorly done. Um, and so I've at least gotten a little of that, but I think it's, I think for the modern world. You talked about getting addicted to the excitement and the going and the things and the here it's running so fast. Well, a lot of those are, are cause this adrenaline fight or flight response in you. And I think I, I think I was addicted to to adrenaline. I really do. I've been in Costa Rica on rehab from adrenaline, and and you look at society the 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 alcohol, the Xanaxes, the Valiums, the People are taking things to slow them down. Well, if you've if you've been able to find in meditation the place in you where those adrenaline rushes don't make any difference, uh, I think you would be much better armed to survive today's modern world full of tigers of a different appearance. Well, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think the conclusions are not in yet as to whether our bodies are actually made to be able to survive it. You know, it may be that the subliminal tiger that goes on with the busyness, the stress, may be in the long run destructive for us. I mean, we may have created a world that's out of whack with how we are biologically put together. And the jury is out on that. I mean, I had a 
conversation with a friend of mine last night. I mean, this is the, one of the subjects I tried to tackle in my first book on Buddha and Darwin is, you know, because we have the, because our minds allow us this incredibly complicated, busy interior life, which not only can, you know, makes tall skies, help us make tall skyscrapers and atom bombs and stuff like that and rockets. Um, uh, so it certainly is materially unbelievably productive, but it may be so out of whack. And this is where hunter gatherers and maybe the forest practitioners uh, are, will be helpful to us. Uh, that, that they lived with a certain greater ease in existence because they weren't pushing one side of their being to uh, the injury of another side. Um, and I, I don't think we really know yet. Um, things like why it is that, well, I mean, text messaging, but talking on a cell phone in a car is equivalent to being drunk. We don't know why that is. But that indicates a real limitation in our ability to be present when we're so busy with that cell phone. And, of course, text messaging is is insane while you're driving. I mean, it's just completely insane. How can anybody think that they can do those two things at once? And when I find myself driving, and I live after all, you guys live, well, I don't know, in in, in Canada, how close you are to Montreal. Uh, but, you know, I live real near San Francisco. And when I, I don't know what I've been doing for the last two minutes when I'm driving, I get really scared. You know, so yeah. well, I get really scared. Down yeah. here, it's not, um, it's not so much the traffic that might be the problem. But um, I was looking down uh, the this beautiful truck that I have, uh, it's old 1986 Toyota Land Cruiser, but it's in perfect shape. Um, and so I was trying to do something with the radio or with the, I was trying to figure out something. And figuring out something is probably not a good thing to be doing when you're driving. Right. And so I'm barreling along 50 miles an hour down a the, this coastal highway here, uh, which has raw jungle on one side and, and secondary jungle on the other. Um, and a Kawadi ran out in the road. Um, I was mentioning at the first of the show that there's some nesting behind the house now. Kawada Mundi, uh, it's kind of like a cross, I don't know, between a koala and a raccoon or something. But uh, they're very cute. And they're and one of them ran out in front of my car and I hit it. I killed it. Oh. And I felt really bad about that but what I really felt bad about was the fact that I knew it was because I was not looking out the front of the car I would have been easy for me to miss it but yeah. I looked up too late to be able to do anything except you know I suppose I could have jerked taken an adrenaline jerk at the wheel and then spun out into the Pacific Ocean which is not good um, and but those things are few and far between, and they really are few and far between for the hunter-gatherer. You talk about a grace and an ease in the... It's. I can 
I can relate to that just sitting out here on this patio. I, I, I was losing my mind when I first got into this house. I thought there was stuff on me all the time. And mm-hmm. um, I had to listen to it. Yeah. It was driving me crazy. <laughs> yeah. Just saying. And yeah, it was a lot yeah. of that going on. And and it's funny because I remember going out in the country when I was a kid. We did a lot, and I never had that problem really that I recall as a kid. But I somehow developed it over the years. And um, it, it, there's really nothing that serious going on out here. You know, I'm not it, the snakes, the whatever else that's in the jungle. They're not really interested in coming up here. They got all they need over there in the woods, you know. And I'm in a little cleared spot, and there's just, like, not a lot here. There's the palm oil tree in the back, but it's the coati and the monkeys that are like that. Uh, doesn't bring the meat eaters. And um, so I'm really not, like, in constant danger, but it, it felt like that at first. And and then it when I relaxed, that when you break that chain of, just rapid fire adrenaline, which you can keep it going just watching TV. Look at our TV shows. But um, when you first break that, I I must have slept. I wanted to do nothing for I don't know two weeks. I just didn't want to do anything. Couldn't hardly. It was like I couldn't be bothered or something. And I think it's because the the physical body is not, as you said, it's not designed. That adrenaline mechanism was not designed to be issued in rapid fire. It was designed to be this reserve thing when real danger existed. Like, that's going to eat me if I don't kill it. Um, and those situations just don't come up that often. They just don't. My host at the first place I stayed had some guys come stay and they hiked and hiked and hiked and they finally hiked at night because they were wanting to see uh, cougars I think is what they were after uh, pumas they would call them here yeah. and and they never did see them and they were trying to see them of course, <laughs> of course they're a little thinner than they were once upon a time but but nonetheless it's not like it's not like you just walk out, you know, if you take one step in there, you're dead. It just doesn't, how could we have ever survived as a species, people? Come on now. And and But it took a while for me to, I don't know where this reaction came from. Because, I, like I said, when I was a kid, it didn't bother me. I had all kind of stuff, pick it up, let it crawl around on my hand. It, you know, a lot of kids do. So it's kind of interesting. Where in society, where did that come from? And um, and I think it's just part of that trying to feed that constant adrenaline thing that we've all managed to get going if we're in, you know, modern city society. I mean, yeah. uh, Jean grew up in Toronto. And oh, you're in Toronto. No, no, I didn't. Okay. You're mistaken. I grew up in farm country. I was born in Toronto and I went back to Toronto but I grew up in farm country and I was raised for every summer of my my youth growing up I was raised in the bush I was taught at a very young age how to hunt how to track how to find plants in the wilderness that were edible um, and yet I still have that yeah reaction to certain insects yeah 
Yeah, it's it's. it's I, and I don't know where it comes from. It's odd because, because I mean, our, they can't hurt me. Yeah. For the most part, the spiders around here can't hurt me. I know that. Um, but it is, and I find it a real challenge to to be able to sit outside and not not be aware that there's something possibly crawling on me that I don't particularly want in close proximity to my flesh. Yeah. It's a massive challenge for me. And they Huge. when they land on the back of your neck, you don't know what, but something's there. It's like, wah! And yep. I, I do now. I just reach up and grab it and throw it. And often I just throw it to the side. I don't look. I don't want to know. Why would I do that? It, it, it's off me now, so why would I want to know? <laughs> if you lived with insects all the time, it would be very hard to live with that kind of phobia. Um, and, you know, where you got it from is it, probably in each case it was something different. It could have been the stress of life. It could have been, you know, Little Miss Muffet. It could have been, you know, your parents who give a lot of fear to their kids um, and stuff like that. I mean, when I was a kid, I had the same yuck thing towards moths, something about the hairiness of moths. And if a moth got in my bedroom, I would have to catch it in a net or something. I could not sleep if there was a moth in my bedroom. And so you know what I did when I started camping? I made myself uh, catch any moth that got in the tent or came near the light or stuff like that. And I made, let me tell you, it was really hard to do. And, you know, I don't know where my phobia about moths came from, but it was really hard to do. Now I don't have any problem doing it. If I go inside me, I can feel myself tightening, you know, that the, the, the patterning is still there deep inside me. But, and some insects are still yucky, but I just find them, or like big blown up pictures of insects, I find it hard to look at. Um, but I think, you know, again, uh, for the people who, you know, uh, they're people who were captured by Indian tribes and stuff like that. And uh, there are a bunch of famous instances of it. And their their descriptions of how uh, calm, how, how at home uh, hunter-gatherers were with all the bugs and stuff like that and how they felt that they were both part of the world together uh, is really interesting, you know, and since we're separate from us that we can nurture these, uh, these kind of reactions to it. And, uh, you know, I mean like the girls and spiders, um, you know, think of how many girls get scared of spiders, but that's been learned. Girls that I'm, I used to be terrified of them. Oh, okay. I was, it was a little, a little tiny thing that couldn't hurt anything hardly, uh, yeah. except other little tiny things, and I would have to kill it. So I wasn't going to catch it. That was too close for me. So I would have to kill it before I could sleep. And, uh-huh. um, and well, I mean, this is as recently as I don't know, eight nine years ago. And um, 
I don't know where exactly. I mean, I was, I used to love watching them weave webs and stuff. You know, like outside yeah. of a window, there'd be a light and so spider would be doing its thing. And But I do remember in Fort Worth, I remember there was a black widow spider out in the driveway. So, you know, dad wanted me to, you know, mom to get me so I could see what one looked like so I'd know what to stay away from. Uh-huh. And uh, mom wasn't keen on the idea, but she did it anyway. And and so the whole time I was out there, mom had a hold of me. And every time I would even sway in the general direction of the thing, she would like snatch me back. And so maybe that had a little to do with it. I don't know. But I I, I got to where I just couldn't couldn't tolerate them. And, you know, we have them that that come up here on the patio sometimes that are as big as dinner plates. You know, I don't know, they're five inches okay. across. And, yeah. uh, you know, now I don't let them stay up here, but I don't freak out either. Yeah. I look over there and I go, oh, I've got to do that again. And I go I go get the dustpan and get rid of them. For the most part, I just, if something's bothering me, I scoop it up in the dustpan and throw it back out in the yard. And they don't come back. They don't. They don't really like patios. They're looking for grass and bugs and stuffs. You know. Yeah. They just kind of wandered up here and thought, "What the heck is this? And what's that thing?" You know, because they're, for the most part, we're like hundreds or thousands of times as big as these things we're talking about. They, if if they're aware of us, they're probably terrified. <laughs> well, I mean, they, they don't. They don't want to bite you unless you sit on them. You know, they're not going to reach out and get you. I had a black widow in one of my windows, and I would play games with it. Uh, it was really hard to catch. Um, and to get, I didn't want them to, you know, reproduce in the house. So <laughs> the way I caught it was, uh, it was not a very big one, uh, was I, I discovered it wouldn't come out. It would hide in the window and come running out and catch prey on its web. And black widow spider webs are very sticky, so um, so I first would flick a fly into the web. But if the fly was dead, the spider wouldn't come out. So I had, to, and here you get uh, the forest monks would would get really angry with me because this is uh, taking lives, which is forbidden. I mean, they were totally letting go uh, so as not to create bad karma. Anyways, I'd half kill a fly, I'd flick it into the web, at the same time I'd have the tube from my vacuum cleaner kind of poison in the air, and when the black widow would run out to grab the fly and sting it, I'd suck it up into the vacuum cleaner. <laughs> That's not very monk-like at all. No, no, yeah, the forest monks would have a little trouble with that. See, the whole idea of, of either being eaten with the forest monks was to be non-harming, right? In the ancient India, they begged. They had, they had a four-day lease on life in the jungle, and then they had to go back to the village and beg food because they weren't allowed to do any productive work, uh, the early Buddhists warned, or the Buddhists in Southeast Asia, not the Chinese and the Japanese. They, they weren't into begging. Um, and uh, so these guys went out, and the idea is it's eat or being eaten out there, and they were stepping out of that by letting go of the eat part of it. In other words, and, and it was the development, and they had these mantras. Um, uh, you know, the tiger would become roaring at you, or the snake would 
creeping around and you would look at it and you would say, if I didn't harm you in a past life, please do not harm me now. And I know it's charming, you know, but they let go of any self-defense and, and they let existence dictate what their karma would be. And they cultivated loving kindness as the way of kind of coming to terms with whatever existence was going to deal with them. Uh, and I love that. I mean, the idea, if I did not harm you in a past life, please, I mean, you know, they have no intention of harming the animal in this life. But if in my past existences I didn't harm you, please do not harm me now. I think it's so wonderful, you know. I mean, it's a profound pacifism, but a very active pacifism. Um, you know, it's like I will accept what existence gives to me and I will hold steady in the face of it. And that's how I'll understand the meaning of existence or understand my own nature. Um, I admire them for it. And of course, it didn't always work. Nature disposed in other ways. And they didn't do it to make it work, only to remind existence of the attitude they were taking towards life, right? Not to manipulate existence, just to remind it that this is how I, this is the, the stand I take. Um, and, uh, a very, you know, we might try that with the spiders. A very extreme, well, good, I suppose. Yeah, uh, I mean, probably not going to, but um, <laughs> it, it, it is. It's, it's, it's perhaps a bit, extreme but it is a profound demonstration of i am at choice yeah i'm not just a programmed response something's coming i'm going to kill it i i can choose i'm it's like that that difference there's you know i watch my dog she'll look at something and if she's look becoming interested if I just let her sit there and look, she reaches a point of agitation where there's nothing I can do to stop her from chasing whatever it is. Uh-huh. But if I can break that early before all that builds up, it's not hard. And she just comes yeah. right back over to me. Yeah. And, um, and that, that, that's like the profound uh, you know, ultimate of it is to just don't ever let it start. Uh, I'm not well, sure I, if that isn't maybe, uh, you know, we've got to... I believe I, we have to find a way to try to blend that with living life, wherever that may take you, wherever you may find yourself. And, yeah. uh, of course, I I made a choice. It was not around that, oddly enough. My choice to come to Costa Rica was about physical healing. Uh-huh. Uh, I've had some physical challenges, and we came down here to do a live remote, and they were relieved. Uh-huh. And um, so I said, well, I'm coming back. And uh, it has been enormously helpful. I, I did. Uh, I'll have six months uh, the next time that I exit the country. Um, so about five now. But I, in the midst, after three months here, I did go back, had to go back and go see my doctors. And it's handy because every 90 days I have to leave as a tourist. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, but, but both of them remarked on the fact that whatever you're doing, keep doing it because it's working. <laughs> Great. But I, the point that you brought up about with your dog 
it's I mean that's really like our minds that if you can catch the the starting of a chain of reactions early on, then they don't have to go to fruition. And, you know, some things just get away from you. You can't. Um, uh, you know, I was talking, talking to a friend of mine again about road rage or about being on the telephone with some really difficult, uh, oops, Oh, let me see if we can turn that down. Um, That's what you get for mentioning a telephone. Be on a telephone and it rings. <laughs> oh, I have an idea. Awesome. Oh, I got an idea. I'll just take this. There we go. Now, is that too disturbing? <laughs> I will be fine. Um, yeah. So oh, it, it, okay. it really is a... A deep exploration in your book of what what these people were doing for millennia, really long time yeah. um, of yeah. of finding your peace with nature when it's coming at you, so to speak. And and, and really, I I, I I believe that's an, a valuable skill in the modern world, and um, it gets into that you know monk on the mountain top versus the monk in the marketplace an issue which I'm facing in my life um, there are some opportunities yeah. that have come along that will be officially discussed I'm sure within days but uh, probably uh, but this next time that I leave I'm going back up to the United States for a while because I need the communication infrastructure to follow my passion um, but I will always return back here uh, and, and oddly enough, I plan to always come back during the – I've been here for the off-season, the rainy season. The, nobody goes there the, during that period. That's when I'm going to come because this okay. has just been lovely. Now, I may not do October again. This has been a, was a miraculous October in that it only rained in the evenings and had beautiful days. and Nobody understands how that happened. I've told them – like multiple times. Look, I phoned ahead. I, I told you, I phoned ahead for good weather. What I just ordered it up. Um, but it, it sounds like an amazing scholarly look at at, at at these traditions that you've that you've put together in this book. Um, and uh, because of course you have uh, the one we've been talking about, meditation in the wild. But then your your first book was called Dismantling Discontent. Um, and you know, looking at you know, early man lived together with the animals and the bugs and the everything, and they were just all getting to get along pretty much, doing their thing. Yeah. I mean, yeah, sometimes you got eaten, but that's part of the thing, you know. And and then how did we get to this point where we're so separate, so separate that we're separate from each other even? But like totally separate from, you know, I know people that don't even like to step on grass. They're like, man, that's what, <laughs> that's what shoes are for. And I'm thinking, wow, you got troubles over there, pal. Because right. we are this stuff, you know. Uh, in Gene's great video, Humans Are Awesome, there's a quote in there about the same stuff that's flowing through you is flowing through your kitty cat and flowing through the trees and... and yeah. uh, 
So it is an amazing look, and I, I think that nature, and I don't mean, you know, that three-foot-by-three-foot three patch by the bus stop. I mean some the bush, as Gene would say, um, is healing and restorative to humans. We're, we need it. We've, like, made ourselves so separate that we don't work right anymore. And, but, but I really believe that there is a huge thing in that adrenaline addiction thing. It, it, whether it's an addiction or not, that constant triggering of that fight or flight mechanism, just, I mean, rapid fire. You drive down the freeway, you, you know, you can get 10 of those in 20 minutes. That's a lot. That's huge. All, all the systems in your body jump to, like 120 percent, which is not good for them, but they can do it for short periods, as long as they got some time to relax afterwards. And that's why it was so important, I think, for like hunter gatherers. You had to have that bonus stuff when you needed it, or you weren't going to survive. You weren't yeah. because you weren't even going to get your hunting done, uh, because that that pushes you into an adrenaline frenzy, so you have that extra oomph. Um, and it, it it is one of the things, you know, people have asked me, even my doctor asked me to think about what is it, you know, because I was only, we were only here for a week, so it really couldn't have been the food or the this or the that because I just didn't have it long enough. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, energetically, there's just a huge difference. And uh, this is an amazing exploration that you've put together. Um, we want to be sure that folks know how to know how to find you. Uh, I guess uh, for meditation in the wild, uh, easy enough. Meditationinthewild.com. And the other one is dismantlingdiscontent.com. So they're both there. And uh, meditation in the wild will probably be in uh, the bookstores in January. Um, so it's in press now. And uh, yeah. I mean, look me up. Uh, be glad to answer any questions anybody has. Um, and uh, yeah, it's fun doing it, um, and uh, it's just part of my life. Uh, I don't know what to say about it. Uh, and well, it, it shows in your, you know, in our in our chat about it that uh, that it has been fun, and that you uh, that it's definitely. A fantastic example of somebody following their passion. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you for uh, sharing your time, talent, and treasure with us tonight. Uh, you've managed to make Jane speechless. That's hard to do. Oh, I'm sorry. I like to hear. No, I, no, it's, actually, it's a good it's thing. Really good. I'm, I'm over here soaking it up. Um, because as I was explaining earlier, this is a. I'm in a transition period. Period, and I'm kind of been swimming in that uh, what next energy, and so I've been listening really intently to a lot of what you've been saying, and I have been blessed with the opportunity to be out here and, and completely surrounded by nature. I'm in the middle of the the woods. I there's trees everywhere. Um, so you know maybe what next is just get outside and and go talk to mama and maybe 
then I'll know. I think that's a great idea. See there? There's it goes that synchronicity thing again, Jane. <laughs> we don't we don't plan our guests. We don't plan what we're going to talk about because we don't plan questions. We don't study people. We we just do this thing, and and it's like this every show. People, you can do this. Trust us. Listen to the shows. You'll hear. It's, maybe our example can help because it works. <clears throat> just do it. So again, that was meditationinthewild.com and dismantling discontent. Almost to have you back to talk. Just the title of that is Yummy. mesmerizing. Yeah, mesmerizing. So uh, really good stuff, folks. Be sure to check it out. The links will also be on the archive on our website at everydayconnection.me. Be sure and get by there. Sign up for our mailing list. Uh, check out the soon-to-be 300 shows. We're past 250 now. A bunch. There's a bunch. Should we call it a bunch? Qualifies to be a bunch, I think. A bunch? Yeah, it's a bunch. And um, uh, I know you'll find something in there. We've got a great search right up there at the top. So uh, check us out. Uh, And we want to thank you for all the checking us out that you do because hundreds of hours, hundreds of hours being listened to every week. It's just awesome stuff. Yay. Yay. Just show up and talk to Absolutely. people and have fun. Yay. Absolutely. It's a tough so, job, but somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to do it. So thank you again, Charlie, for uh, sharing your time with us. And um, I want to thank all of our listeners. And join us next time. But until then. To our mother, to each other, and especially to yourselves, stay connected. Have a great now, everybody. Join Jane and Rick again next time. Until then, visit their website at everydayconnection.me and subscribe for news and updates. Stop by their Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash everydayconnection and join the conversation. You can also subscribe on iTunes by searching for Everyday Connection Radio. Subscriptions are free, just like your Everyday Connection. to ask the biggest question of your life the only question before that question how do you find the perfect ring to ask it with with the incredible selection of diamonds at jared and our price match guarantee you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love visit your local jared store today and dare to be devoted we promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer see jared.com slash price match for details So you're ready to ask the biggest question of your life, the only question before that question. How do you find the perfect ring to ask it with? With the incredible selection of diamonds at Jared and our price match guarantee, 
you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love. Visit your local Jared store today and dare to be devoted. We promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer. See jared.com slash price match for details. 